You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get. For just $2 a month, that is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. The Ashley Madison hack is some evil shit. I think so. I think that private information needs to be kept private as much as I feel that public information needs to be made public. Already the blackmailers are showing up. Anonymous email sent to people saying, I know that your name is on there. Send me cash in Bitcoin or else I'm going to expose you. Evil stuff. I don't have a lot of patience for the sentiment out there. Oh, they're all a bunch of cheaters. They're getting what's coming to them. No, 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 no. You don't know anything about the circumstances. I mean, first of all, we don't know if they put their names in there themselves. We don't know if their spouse is okay with them doing this. We don't know if they cheated or if they were just curious. We don't know if they were a journalist just researching a story. You don't know anything. But there it is. It's out there now. And it's huge. I don't think we've even begun to understand the importance of this because it is a huge meltdown in the private sphere, 32 million potential relationships, like a bomb going off, destroying families on every block. I mean, the families that are going to get broken up over this, the divorce rate, the sheer amount of human misery that this hack is going to create is staggering and depressing. And it puts the media in a really awkward position. I mean, do you want to go near something that evil? We do. 
we have to. Once it's public, once it's part of the public conversation, the public debate, you really don't have a choice about whether to talk about it or not. The choice is about how to talk about it. And what we saw in the hours following the hack is sort of a standardization of a moderate path on behalf of the Canadian mainstream media who basically decided that they wouldn't get into the specific names that were revealed in the hack, but they would present sort of an aggregate generalized number of there's this many people from this province, there's this many people from the government, there's this many people in the military. Of course, there were also dozens of media-related email addresses in the data dump. That is not mentioned in most of the coverage. And so, being the media that covers the media, I tweeted that out using the same sort of moderate path formula that everybody else did. This many email addresses on Ashley Madison from CTV, this many from CBC, and so on. Other Canadian media went further. The Huffington Post Canada found a way to report the fact that Eve Adams, a liberal MP for the time being, Eve Adams, her email address shows up in the dump. She denies that she put it there. And now that they've made that public, I'm talking about that. Right or wrong, seems weird to ignore it. BuzzFeed Canada just went right out with it and reported the fact that Colin Kenny, whether that is the independent senator or somebody just using his information, that name is on there too, along with over $1,000 spent using AshleyMadison.com. What's the possible rationale there? Well, the guy has been involved in a bunch of uh, sexual harassment allegations in the past. Maybe that makes him fair game. I don't know. We are making up the rules on how to cover this on an ad hoc basis, news org to news org. What should we be doing? How should we be reporting this? If at all, I'm going to talk about it with a journalist who's been writing about it, Matthew Ingram, who is now a senior writer at Fortune Magazine. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Andy Lamy, Jacob Sarabrin, Philip, Alex Gillis, Gene Thompson, Aaron Yeager, Mark Finch, Pascal Reichnogu, Kathleen Dawn, and Kevin Cardoza. Kevin, why did you decide to be awesome? I love the content that Canada Land produces, so I want to put my money where my mouth is. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone. 
around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by our sponsor, Picatech.com. So what does Picatick do? Okay, well, you know Ticketmaster? You know how they have all these convenience fees and service fees, and you think to yourself, there's no way that that's justified. It just seems like price gouging. Picatick just eats their lunch. You go to their website, you set up your event that you want to sell tickets for, and you sell the tickets. And Picatick doesn't take anything. It's free. The only charge is the credit card fee, which Picatick doesn't get. You can either pass that on to the people buying the tickets, or you can include that in the price of the ticket. And that's it. It's a free service for promoting events and selling tickets to them. And you only have to pay them if you decide that you want to do events sort of on a professional level. You want your pages to be specifically branded and you want your tickets to be branded. If you want special analytics on the people who are buying your tickets, if you want to take it to the next level, that's where Picketix starts taking fees. But for most of us who throw events for any reason, you're just going to use it for free. And I asked one of the Picketix guys, Jay, why he has to be so destructive and disruptive to poor Eventbrite and Ticketmaster. Well, that's what startups are supposed to do, you know. So we have a small team and it's under a dozen people and there's so much gouging in our industry. And for people that are putting on events for 500 people, we want to empower that. We want we want them to go out there and do more of that. Try out Picketic.com. It's super easy. Tell them who sent you. So, Matthew, should we be... Printing the names of people whose email addresses pop up in the Ashley Madison dump. <laughs> um, should we? Well, I guess that depends. It's a little naive to say, no, we shouldn't print any names. What if, well, to just take one example, uh, Josh Duggar showed up in the database um, with a registered account. He's, uh, you know, well-known for being part of this TV family, but also well-known for being a sort of moral and family values lobbyist. He's worked with a number of organizations. He's raised money based on those, you know, those principles. And so this is a pretty clear violation of those principles. So is that, you know, newsworthy enough? Is that, does that have sort of enough social value to report on? Well, obviously, Gawker decided it does. Other outlets have decided the same thing. What if what if there's a, a prominent politician or a religious leader or, you know, a judge or something, and this sort of goes to their character? That's That seems to be relevant. I think the, the, the hard part is that, you know, this is a classic sort of slippery slope where eventually you can probably argue that just about anybody, you know, would be, would be sort of fair game. It's funny because, I mean, you, you presented that as a hypothetical, but Josh Duggar was exposed by Gawker for having his name on the list and the justification there. I mean, it's sort of a age-old precedent where we don't really report on extramarital affairs of public figures Unless, and then there's a series of unlesses, a series of conditions. And right. one of the un, one of the unlesses is unless they've made a big public show right. of their fidelity and their family values, which was the case with Josh Duggar. And then you could apply that. You know, we, the slippery slope happened right there in your answer because we went from okay, you can do it if there's somebody who's grandstanded on fidelity and, and the marriage, and uh, you know, and then it turns out they're a hypocrite. They made their their private life public, right. and we're just responding. And then you said, but what if they're a government official and it speaks to character? So. 
already we've we've broadened it, right? Because right. I think that we have all decided in the media that if a politician, it's the same thing about outing gay people, if they have made all kinds of anti-homosexual statements or all kinds of family values and, and posed with their wives, then it's fair game, but otherwise we respect their privacy. If you apply the Josh Duggar principle, certainly we would expose a politician who has made a big deal about their marriage and family values and campaigned on that. But we also would do it if they were just big enough, right? Like if Mulcair or Trudeau or Harper's name or their or their spouse's names showed up on that list, right. that would totally be in the news today, wouldn't it? Well, and so that's the, that's the big problem is if your decision rests on whether someone is prominent enough, are they a public figure? Well, what does that even mean? You know, what what is a public figure? So that's kind of one of the issues that I, I wrote about how sort of social media is, is affecting this problem because anyone can effectively report on anything. It shows up on blogs, it shows up on Twitter, it shows up on Facebook, it shows up on the internet, and then eventually we start reporting on that. So it's a, that's a slippery slope of its, of its own. But what if someone's just really active on Twitter? What if someone has a big following on Instagram? What if someone, you know, at what point do people become public figures? I don't even know that we understand sort of what that, what that term even means anymore. Right, like what if their name appears on a big public list? Because we're not talking about a decision to publish or to not publish something that the media alone knows. Right. We're talking about a decision to publish something that has already been published. That's right. probably the most public document in the world today is everyone is pouring over this Ashley Madison dump. So you're really just like deciding on whether or not to give something a signal boost right. or to kind of uh, highlight. Right, and so I think what happens is, let's say a bunch of people are – circulating this list on Reddit or they're circulating it on or it shows up on a blog somewhere, then you can say you can point as a media outlet, a, a, a traditional or, or mainstream media outlet, you can point to this other place and say, well, look, people are talking about it here. So it's effectively public. So we might as well write about it anyway. And so then it's it's quite easy to talk yourself into writing about just about anything. And and the you know, the the what compounds the problem is that lots of media entities are, you know, they're desperate to generate traffic. Let's face it. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be the New York Times. You still have to, you still have to produce numbers. You have to produce page views and unique visitors and clicks because that's what your business model is fundamentally driven by. And so if there's a huge story about someone who showed up in this database you know, you could argue, well, it's already out there anyway, so we're not making it public. We're just we're just talking about something that's already out there. Yeah, and you know, certainly there's a, there's the traffic motivation, but I think that a lot of people in news are also just motivated on about like we want to talk about what everyone's talking about. Right. And this is just clearly once the culture takes over, app developers get involved in media in a sense because they create these sites where you can check any name and run it across the database. So then mm -hmm. people just on their own start doing that and they start tweeting what they find and there's a whole conversation that's happening. So it's almost the opposite of, you know, it's come up a couple times where I have put out the opinion, and it is my opinion, if a news organization has an exclusive on a story, they, they and only they know about a story and they decide not to run it, it's pretty much 
in practical terms, tantamount to suppressing that story. Like they, they are hiding that story and the public has no chance of knowing it. And I've made that case before, uh, you know, w- w- with a, the star and the Gameshi story or with the Paul Watson thing. You know, you, you are keeping the public away from that story if you alone know it. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that is if everyone – knows it and you're deciding not to publish it like what are you doing then like your your what is your value add your value add is a value minus it's like we're the only people who have the principles and the ethics not to talk about this thing that everyone else is talking about it and you know really you're just you're just <laughs> removing yourself from the p- popular conversation right but the problem is that your argument you know to that sort of position taken to its logical conclusion results in a race to the bottom because if everyone is talk if Gawker is publishing everything, um, of course, actually Gawker sort of unpublished a story, so that does happen. They do have principles of some kind, but but if everyone is writing about it, then you might as well write about it. So then everyone writes about everything, and I mean, is that I don't know, is that good? I don't know. Well, I think that the, that to actually focus on, well, what is the value add of, of a, a traditional news organization or whatever, any professional news organization, is not this kind of um, gatekeeper role that it used to be where, you know, everybody has a certain amount of information in the media and then the media would sort of almost get together and decide, well, we're, we're, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go into this person's private life and we will decide what people know. Instead, it's about – contextualizing and verifying information. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's very important, and we haven't said it yet, to say that these emails are in a sense meaningless because anybody could put anybody's email in the Ashley Madison database. You know, those were not verified emails. So, you know, giving people that kind of context on it and – and then, you know, where the Canadian media has landed on this in the papers today, anyhow, and the mainstream media has essentially said, OK, we're not going to run names, but we are going to talk in broad terms. Which cities have the most Ashley Madison emails? Which government agencies have the most? Um, you know, we'll, we'll tell you the numbers. You know, does the federal or the provincial government have more people using this site? You know, just before you and I started this conversation, I went out and looked at all the media emails that were in it. And I said, OK, fair enough. Here are the media emails in the Ashley Madison dump aggregated, you know, and, and generalized into this is the media, you know, CTV was the media organization that had the most emails on that database, either by their own hand or because somebody just stuck those emails on there. Yeah. And I, and I think that's obviously one way to approach it. You're not identifying individual people. Um, I do think not enough outlets, at least in my reading of, of what's out there, not enough have pointed out that in in the vast majority of cases, those emails are are meaningless because they don't necessarily, they aren't necessarily the email of the person who signed up. Ashley Madison didn't verify emails until you started paying. So unless you can attach it to credit card details or, or physical address, then you, you know, it, it, it's really meaningless. I mean, Tony Blair's government address shows up in the list. I find it hard to believe he signed up with his own email address. So I, I wish there was a bit more context. I wish there wasn't so much kind of rushing to the site where you can type in a name or an address and and then just listing what you find. Okay, but it's not meaningless. Just because there's plausible deniability doesn't make it meaningless. It's possible that any name in that data dump was put there by somebody else. Okay, meaningless is is overstating it. But I think... You know what I mean? Like, if you found out that your wife's name was on that list, it wouldn't be meaningless to you. You'd probably have a question or two for her. Yeah, and I think there's so it's not meaningless, but it, there's a lot more explanation that's required before you say so and so's email address appeared in there. Therefore, 
they were a diehard user of Ashley Madison. It's interesting to talk about this stuff. And the more I talk about it with all of these stories, be it, you know, do we report on the Sony executives when they got hacked? And, you know, these, the decision there didn't get made because the public had a burning right to know about that. No. It was about these people are powerful and rich, and it's really interesting right. to read their conversations about what they think about celebrities. And that's why that stuff got published. I think that's why this is different. And, and it's why this is, to some extent, more important, you know, in a way, in a sort of social way, in a way in how it determines sort of how we behave. You know, Sony, the Sony emails were about the sort of rich and powerful, were about you know, movie directors and actors and actresses. And so it was the typical kind of, you know, National Enquirer or TMZ type of fodder, which everyone loves to to kind of read about because these people are sort of larger than life and they're, you know, they're multi-gazillionaires. With Ashley Madison, we're, we're into an area where it's it's pretty much just regular people. You know, it's not, I assume celebrities probably don't have to use Ashley Madison. So, you know, it's it's more or less just folks like you and me. And so then it becomes, and you, you add that to the fact that we're all kind of media entities of our own. We're all publishers. We're all, we all have the ability to disseminate this information if we want to. It's, it's kind of up to us collectively to decide where is the line or is there a line? If you believe that adultery is wrong and, and hypocrisy is wrong, that's one thing. Maybe you have a conversation with your friend or your partner if you find their name in there. But it's another thing to sort of just release people's personal information, millions of people on the Internet to everyone. But the ethical line here is just so blurry. Like, you know, and even to, to keep broadening it into these questions of celebrities, okay, so we could say, yeah, if they're rich and, and famous and powerful. But the media set an ethical line when it came to the, the fappening, all of those nude pictures of, of celebrities. Nobody really republished those, and Reddit even even scrubbed the uh, the subreddit where people were sharing th- those pictures. And we said, you know what? It's a dumb moral distinction for us to say, oh, well, these are cheaters, so it's okay. And then in the fappening, look, all these people did was take pictures of themselves. There's no moral turpitude in taking a nude shot of yourself. So let's respect the fact that this was a complete invasion of privacy. They're both complete invasions of privacy. You know, uh, you know, but we I, actually set an ethical- I, I actually think you could argue that is a line that you could draw. I mean, uh, clearly lots of people did draw the line there. So is that where the line, line should be drawn? I don't know. I mean, I don't, you know, personally, whether someone cheats on their spouse is not interesting to me. I'm not even that interested that Josh Duggar did it. It's certainly not very surprising. So then what is the sort of value of releasing this information at all? I'm, I'm not... I'm not clear on that. Well, you know, what got lost in the shuffle is that the the hack team, hackers always have some sort of sanctimonious, you know, especially when they're doing a big data dump. And, right. and theirs was, they had a bit of a thing that, you know, these are cheaters anyhow, so to hell with them. But the initial thing, as I understand it, was that Ashley Madison had this, you could pay to have a complete delete of your account. And the hackers yes. learned that that was bullshit, that they were not completely scrubbing people's accounts and that this was, uh, we're going to expose you. You're not, you're not giving people the service that, uh, you know, the right to be forgotten that you've, you've sold to them. There is almost like a public service aspect to knowing that. But of course, you know, what, the damage that they've done. I mean, this is really big. Like how many hundreds or thousands of marriages are going to get destroyed because of this dump? I mean, it's not meaningless, you know? Let's face it. The, in my experience, hackers will often come up with sort of ex post facto rationalizations for what they do. You know, this person deserves it. This person is a bad person. This company is a bad company. I think in most cases, it's 
it's just for the lulls. It's because it will be funny or it will be, you know, they like the fact that Ashley Madison helps people cheat. And so now they're revealing these people. I don't think moral issue drove this at all. I think it was just tacked on to, to someone who wanted to hack a database. They did it because they could. Right. And because it would be funny. So the moral, I mean, we, you know, you don't, we don't really have like a moral conversation about what hackers should or shouldn't do. We can just assume that they're going to do whatever they can do. Or if some hackers won't do it, some other ones will. And so then we move our conversation to what the media should or shouldn't do. But that almost falls into the same dynamic, because if we put the line somewhere, well, we're not going to do this, somebody out there will. And then it's going to like right. the Huffington Post broke ranks with everybody else in that they have a piece up there about Eve Adams. Her name pops up and she's denied it. And it's the old media thing of, you know, you don't report that she's on the list. You report that she's denied putting herself on the list. They stepped one step beyond everybody else today and use some of the kind of shop-worn, you know, excuses that we use to do that sort of reporting. So then you're kind of like handing that role to the non-mainstream press, you know, that, oh, we can have an exclusive if we're willing to go where others are not. I would argue you have to go further. In the post I wrote for Fortune about it, I mean, your, your point is everyone, someone will do it. And so then once they do it, it increases the likelihood someone else will do it. So now it's no longer just mainstream media, it's all forms of media. And then it comes down to social media. And, and ultimately, I think it comes down to us. It's not, it's not what the media decides to report on. It's what we decide collectively as people who use these tools. What are we collectively deciding is worth, is worth paying attention to? And we do it, you know, Twitter users do it, Facebook users do it. All day, every day. What do I click on? What do I retweet? What do I like? What do I share? Sort of collectively, we're making those decisions and we're kind of moving the bar, that line around. Um, that's the fascinating part to me. It's no longer, you know, newspaper A or, or newspapers one, two and three decide what is publicized. It's we're all deciding that. That's interesting. And, and you were tweeting about this, that this almost, you know, it, it brings up a new discussion about like, you know, discretion and, you know, discretion being the better part of valor. Like we could demure, you know, yes, you learn one morning that you have the option of looking at, you know, the actress Jennifer Lawrence's butthole, but you don't have to. You can make the decision like, yes, that's a click away and no one will ever know that I looked at it. But, you know. That's not right that I should be looking at that. I'm, I'm not going to look at the Ashley Madison list. I'm not going to look at these nude celebrities. Right. I mean, is that even feasible? Like, don't we all guiltily check that stuff out and, uh, you know, be, and, and we, we rationalize it the same way? Well, it's out there. I'm not the one who hacked it. I'm not the one who stole this from the person. It doesn't really, you know, change things whether I look at it or not. Or maybe we, we need to have a, like more of a moral conversation about, you know, and it's like, I don't know, like public shaming for sharers. Like, sorry, you shouldn't have retweeted that. Well, I think, and those are sort of the fascinating kind of dynamics of this of this new world that we all live in, to watch that happening, to watch particularly public shaming. Um, public shaming in itself is a, is a sort of challenging problem. At what point does kind of beating up on somebody for, for some perceived failing or, or another turn into just a giant mob? Uh, you know, with pitchforks and, and torches. It, it's, uh, these are the sort of, when you, when you have a completely distributed and sort of networked social media, that's what you see happening. And I think we're 
trying to find those boundaries. But it's, you know, like that, that's the conversation that we've been having for a while is like, oh, cyberbullying and piling on and, and you know, against public shaming. But I, I guess I'm wondering if there isn't like, you know, an argument to be made. Like that is how a society establishes ethical norms is, is by, you know. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. That is what we're doing. That is the process that we're seeing. And only the only way to to find the line is to cross it effectively. So when enough people, presumably, you know, this is the optimistic view, when enough people uh, react to the crossing of the line, then it sort of filters out gradually that there is a line. Yeah. And the only problem is if you sort of wish that the line were drawn somewhere else, you're probably not going to like that whole process. I think you're right about that. I mean, you said something earlier about even Gawker having ethics because they they unpublished a story about an executive who was a media executive who was, uh, you know, found to be cruising for, uh, you know, uh, a, a male prostitute and, and, you know, a highly publicized story that they ultimately withdrew. Mm-hmm. But that obviously wasn't about ethics. I mean, the only ethic, Gawker is explicit about this. Their only principle, they say, is honesty. That's their only principle is, well, is that they're going to say. Well, what's they, interesting. But when they unpublished that story, it was because society had so completely rejected that principle that anyone had a right to know about this. It was because of the pitchforks that Gawker found that moral line. I think it was in part because of that. I think I think Nick Denton, you know, he gets a lot of criticism for what he's done with Gawker and so on and, and his kind of uh, venal uh, lack of principles. And I know a lot of people believe that he made that decision to unpublish that story simply because you know, he's worried about Gawker losing advertising or whatever. But I I actually happen, maybe I'm naive, but I, I actually believe that he has changed his mind about what is valid and, and what isn't and what sort of invasions of privacy are worthwhile and what aren't. And he, he said explicitly, you know, this is the type of story that in the past Gawker would have had no problem with. It would have been exactly the kind of thing that we did. That was our whole thing. But... You know, he's effectively saying that isn't our thing anymore. And and it's partly because there isn't as much social value to doing that as we thought, or there isn't enough to, to justify us doing that. And I honestly believe that he has changed his mind. Now, why he changed his mind, I don't know. Was it all the people beating up on Gawker? For those stories, I don't know. It probably helped. You are a, a trusting soul. <laughs> I, as I understand it, there were, he, he was facing like a mutiny within the ranks of Gawker. Like it was very divisive within the company. Yeah, although there's a mutiny at Gawker every three and a half hours. Like that, <laughs> you know, that's just the, the way that company operates. Um, let's let's uh, have the conversation that we would have had if this was uh, when I used to have you on Search Engine, my old technology show. Every time one of these security issues came up, uh, a hack and then a leak, how much information do we give to social media companies? How much information do we give to just these private entities online? And when are we going to learn our lesson about using, mm-hmm. you know, slush email accounts, not using our real names, using better passwords? When are they going to learn their lesson about using better encryption, actually protecting their users? And, you know, it was always, when I wrote about that for McLean's, when I talked about it on Search Engine, those types of personal security privacy issues were always the least popular, least shared stories. <laughs> Nobody ever wanted to talk about that. Yeah. And I remember saying, it's going to take 
a privacy apocalypse. It's going to take a Chernobyl where, because you don't care if, if there's a hack and your credit card information gets put online, the credit card company will just, they'll send you a new credit card. They'll cover you for your losses. It's yeah. Nobody cares until it's something that's really personal like this. I mean, is this the big one, Matthew? What, is this going to finally wake people up to the fact that we are totally totally vulnerable and exposed. <laughs> well, it's certainly going to wake, wake some people up. Let's put it that way. There's going to be a lot of people who this is going to change their minds about how they behave. But, and it is, you know, the interesting thing about it, as we said before, this is, this is significantly different than just a credit card database or some emails at a company like Sony. This is 40 million, you know, more or less regular people, guys mostly, cheating on their spouses. So, or thinking you know, about a, it, you know, or thinking about it or, you know, you know what nobody ever, I, I'm sorry, this is a total digression, but nobody ever has brought up in this is like, how many of these people have like polyamorous or open relationships? Like that's not even considered. Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. Maybe some of their spouses didn't mind. You know, we don't know that we're sort of imposing our own kind of, you know, worldview or whatever on those people and assuming that, you know, the same question was raised about the, the executive you mentioned that Gawker wrote about. Maybe his spouse knows this happens. Yeah. Maybe they don't care. We don't know that. But I do find it interesting that this this is a lot closer to just kind of regular people. 40 million regular users of an internet service. Okay, it's a little sketchy, but it's not that much sketchier than lots of other internet services. So, you know, it is closer to being the kind of the thing that will impact lots of people. And I will bet you that it will not change people's behavior one iota. <laughs> uh, because, in fact, I think it was Charlie Wurzel wrote something saying exactly that. Yes, this is a huge deal. Yes, it's a giant, you know, warning flag that online security is, is a huge issue and probably no one will care and no one will change their behavior. Because, you know, human beings are just bad at that. Human beings are just terrible at not doing things they want to do because of some kind of nebulous potential future risk. It's just, we're just, human beings are terrible at that. So you know what might be more likely? Here's my kind of crazy sci-fi prediction, but I kind of think it's just an eventuality. Like, all of these leaks get aggregated, right? Like, you can just do big data mashups. You take all of the Sony information credit card stuff, personal information you get from this. And, you know, apparently the Ashley Madison stuff includes people's actual text content, sexual fantasies, you know, then you add that, like, what if one day Google or Facebook has a huge breach and there will just be some website where you just, you know, pop someone's name in, in, you know, five or 10 years from now, and you just get everything, you know, you just, and that's what you do before you hire someone or before you date someone. And it's just known that everybody has all sorts of personal private information. And then, just the definition of what is personal, you know, I guess I'm talking about the death of privacy, uh, but in practical terms, like, isn't some sort of, you know, person search engine like that an inevitability? Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely inevitable. Um, the interesting thing to me is to wonder what if what actually changes isn't our kind of definition of privacy or our fear about online revelations like that or or. Uh, breaches. What if what if what changes is our our belief that you know when you're hiring somebody, photos of them doing something dumb when they were in high school on Facebook is actually relevant. What or that people don't have personal lives where they do things, you know that maybe aren't uh, you know where that kind of 
the, the crossover between your personal life and your your kind of quote unquote professional life goes away because we, we realize that people have personal lives and that maybe they do get drunk now and then and do something dumb and someone takes a picture of them and puts it on Facebook. I mean, obviously they're going to be, you know, there's going to be lines that we draw there too. But I wonder if those lines are shifting. It's a more, yeah, it, it's sort of like a more humanist philosophy. I mean, you know, they have shifted. I mean, even even Obama saying, you know, to get ahead of some scandal, like, yeah, I snorted the odd, odd line of coke. He, he admits that in his book. And it's just like, yeah, people do things. And you diffuse the ability for somebody to find some deep throat smoking gun kind of, you know, scandal when you just say like, yeah, this happened. And, and you know, I'm a human being and so are you. This is what I wonder. Is the scandal of the future going to be? That you search for somebody and nothing comes up. <laughs> they, they never had a drink. They never <laughs> s- said something stupid on Twitter. They're just the most boring person you've ever met. And like, that, that would make me so suspicious. Yeah, because then they must have a serious team of operatives basically just flushing everything from every database. That would make me definitely suspicious. I hope we're getting to the point where we're we're sort of more tolerant of those things. I don't – there are some things obviously we – we don't want to tolerate, but I think we're, I would hope that, that we're becoming more open to the idea that, you know, human beings are theoretically well-rounded and, and have all sorts of different, you know, things they're interested in. And some of those aren't terribly relevant, you know, if, and if you are, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a judge or whatever, and you, you had a rough spot in your marriage and you signed up for Ashley Madison, is that, does that somehow disqualify you from yeah. doing your job? It's, it's moved so quickly. I remember the first story about this I ever covered was uh, a teacher on MySpace who had uh, – she was drinking a beer on MySpace, and she got, and she got fired. Hmm. Those were in the early days of social media. I remember that the, uh, the principal who fired her said, well, it's not so much that you drank, but the judgment, the poor judgment you showed in publicly posting a picture of yourself uh, drinking alcohol, you, you couldn't make that argument anymore. I mean, that's gone. I actually think, well, cer- certainly people are trying. I actually had a conversation not that long ago with, with someone who works for a large company and they were doing some hiring and there was a person they were considering and this, this friend said, you know, we found some photos of this person on their, on social media and they were doing these things. They were, I don't know, doing body shots or something. And, and this, and they made the exact same argument you just described that it wasn't what they were doing, it was the judgment that they showed in posting those. And I... I suppose so, but now we, we post pictures of each other, so, you know, you lose control of, uh, you know, who's putting that stuff up. I actually tried, I tried hard to argue. I said, look, I would actually be more likely to hire that person than, <laughs> than someone who didn't do that, because at least I know they're a human being. They have other interests. They're, they're you know, it's not criminal, for God's sake, to do. So why why would that somehow disqualify them from this job? All right. I'm just hoping nobody finds any pictures of my LARPing hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Matthew, thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, it's a great debate. Okay, that's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. Our website is canadalandshow.com, and the crowdfunding page is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen. Canada Land Commons is off this week. Shortcuts will be out on Thursday. If you like this show, please support it.
hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.